How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. After a few moments of silent prayer, uh, I will open in prayer before we do that. Bill, um, I think, uh, I can never remember his name, Judge uh, Taft, right? Yeah, let him know. He was real excited when we had Raphael here, and I don't have his email address, so I can't email him the information on that. But if you would, that would be tremendous. I appreciate it. Okay, let's. Uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so very grateful that we can be here this evening. We're grateful that we still have freedom in this nation. And as we learn what is going on in this nation, there are some very uh, threatening things that are taking place. But we know that uh, you are much greater than any of the schemes and conspiracies and and uh, uh, fantasies of uh, fallen men uh, to try to uh, subvert the freedoms of this nation and overturn the influence of Christianity. And, Father, we just pray that you would continue to uh, expose uh, these these uh, attempts to change laws and to change uh, establishment principles so that we might um, be able to uh, take a stand, vote in the right people, and, uh, and, uh, and be a, an influence of salt and light in this generation. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word that you would help us to understand the things that we look at, bring these things to mind, reinforce in our thinking what we have already learned in Romans, that we might be prepared to uh, move into the latter part of this tremendous epistle. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we get started in Romans tonight, I want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about the pre-trib rapture conference that was uh, held in Dallas this this last week. Uh, West Houston Bible Church and Dean Bible Ministry supply, I'm never sure who volunteers on what, so it's both. Uh, but but we take uh, video equipment. We take uh, other equipment up there to help out. We have volunteers to help out with a number of things. And it, it, truly, we're, we play a very important role uh, in what we do to bring about this conference. There were probably close to 400 people uh, in attendance uh, this year. Most of the sessions were pretty well uh, crowded. The focus of the schedule this year was on Israel, what the Bible teaches uh, about Israel. And I'm just going to review a little bit how the schedule went. The first morning, Dr. David Hawking. Uh, Hawking was a pastor in Southern California for, for many years. He's on the radio. Uh, Gene, you know Hawking? Do you ever know him? He's been out there a long time. He's a huge mountain of a guy. He'd probably cast a shadow over Goliath. Uh, <clears throat> very, very uh, strong uh, speaker. And he spoke on why the modern state of Israel is related to end-time Bible prophecy. And he did an excellent job of showing from the Scripture why Israel and why Jerusalem is important. I missed that session. I was... Uh, just getting over a bad chest cold, and I was using the time to to rest a little extra and to continue to work on my own presentation. So I missed both of the uh, for the first morning session of both Monday and Tuesday uh, because I was using that to get my my act together. Uh, the second speaker 
for those who could un- understand his Yiddish, Russian, Polish, German, Brooklyn, California, Texas accent, was uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And uh, Arnold spoke on the prophetic promise of the land of Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. Tommy did an excellent job of organizing these presentations, even though he said that he really didn't think about it. I think he thought about these more than he did the ones on Tuesday. But they came together in quite a significant order. Arnold started off with the prophetic promise of the land of Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promises the specific piece of real estate to Abraham and his descendants. And so he went through all of those passages uh, quite exhaustively, showing that the Abrahamic covenant is really the foundation for the land promise in the Old Testament, and that Israel's uh, ownership of the land is given by the one who owns the entire earth, which is God. He has a sovereign right of disposal of property, and he has given that land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob in perpetuity, although there's a condition that comes out in the Mosaic Covenant, and that is that if they are not spiritually obedient, then they, they are going to be kicked out of the land. And so the only way to live in God's land is to live in God's land, God's way. And uh, Arnold did a great job of substantiating that, as always. Following lunch, Charlie Clough was the third speaker on Monday, and he spoke about the prophetic promise of the land in the land covenant in Deuteronomy, and specifically in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Now, what Charlie did was a little bit different from what a lot of people uh, might expect, There's a debate within contemporary Old Testament scholarship about whether or not there is an actual uh, separate land covenant, Palestine covenant, as it used to be called under uh, by older dispensationalists. I usually refer to it as the land covenant or the real estate covenant. Deuteronomy 29 starts off by saying that there's another covenant other than the one that was given at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai, so that implies that there's a second, a, a different covenant from the Sinai covenant that is the basis for the land promise that's, that's given in Deuteronomy 29. A lot of contemporary Old Testament scholars want to argue that what the other covenant that is being discussed there in Deuteronomy 29 is, is sort of Moses' revision of the Sinai covenant in his Deuteronomy message. There's some differences, some minor differences between what was given on Mount Sinai and what is stated by Moses in uh, Deuteronomy. They're not contradictory, they are complementary. And so, uh, but, but among contemporary scholarship, they, they argued that, that the Deuteronomic covenant is what's being mentioned there in Deuteronomy 29. So, uh, Charlie was taking the view that, okay, let's assume that they're right. We're going to show that the promise of the land is still embedded profoundly in Deuteronomy. Some of you have listened to De- Charlie's Deuteronomy series online, and you know that he spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy, and he did an excellent job of demonstrating that throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy, there is the embedded assumption that Israel has been given the land uh, that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in perpetuity. So he did a great job of establishing that. 
Then in that what I call the sleeper slot, because that's what most of us want to do at 3.15 in the afternoon is sleep, uh, Tommy stuck Randy Price, and and anybody who knows Randy knows that that Randy is is just, you know, detail-oriented doesn't even come close to capturing it. Randy's first book on the temple was about 750 pages long. It was called The Coming Last Day's Temple. And Dr. John Walbert, maybe with a little tongue-in-cheek, said no one in all of history had ever written so much about the temple, and he doubted if so much would ever be written again. But then since then, uh, Randy's written two more books on the temple. So <laughs> uh, Randy uh, leaves no, no, no molecule of sand uh, unturned. He looks at every detail. And so his presentation uh, gets a little, he gets a little bogged down in the details because he read it this year. Usually he, he teaches it more than he reads it, but he read it and that kind of was hard for uh, some people to track. Uh, but he did an excellent job of dealing with the prophetic promise of the land in the new covenant. See, and what this is showing is in every one of those covenants with Israel, there is a promise of the land. And in the New Covenant, the New Covenant is going to be uh, brought into effect in Israel when they are back in the land and when they have a Davidic king on the throne. And you can't separate the New Covenant fulfillment from the presence of the Messiah, Davidic king on the throne, and Israel being united and back in the land. They're, they're inseparable. So he did a great job with that as well. And then in the evening, we had a, our banquet. Actually, the rubber chicken wasn't so rubbery, and uh, <clears throat> and so the dinner wasn't too bad, right? It wasn't, wasn't too bad. It's been worse. It was delicious. It was delicious. It's been worse. So, um, yeah, and so it was a carrot cake. Yes, all all the pieces I ate were very good. That's my favorite cake, as everyone knows. And there were people at the table who didn't even touch there. So, you know, waste not, want not. Um, but the speaker that night, oh, we had a we had a musician, one pastor who <clears throat> name will not be mentioned, commented to me afterwards says, you know. I don't know whether I'm out of touch or they're out of touch or what's going on, but they have some really unusual musicians that play at the banquet at pre-trib. And I agree with him. He, that, but, but Tim LaHaye had known this man for a number of years. He had actually uh, won a Country Music Association award for um, um, something or other, his guitar playing. He had been featured on a show. Some of you remember this way back in the late 70s or so. There was a, a show on TV called That's Incredible. And people did these, you know, remarkable stunts. And he was billed as the fastest guitar player on earth. And uh, he played the William Tell Overture in about 22 seconds while he was riding a motorcycle at 65 miles an hour. And you could hear every single note. It was fast. And uh, this guy came. He's just an old cowboy and uh, with his black hat and black jeans and black coat and everything. But he, I'm, he played. I wish I could remember. If um, Linda Monroe were here, she, she would know. She was quite impressed. He played two Mozart overtures on the guitar at the same time. It was incredible. I mean, I've never seen... Like three guitars. 
Yeah, it sounded like three guitars. It was just unbelievable. I've never heard a guitar played like that. And he was quite remarkable. So he was a, a, a little entertainment. And he even got everybody a little get a little jazzed up because he says, now, now a lot of you are Baptists, so we're going to sing a song that most of you sang in Sunday school. And there were a group of us from Houston who who had great fun with this because we got to sing, Do Lord. <laughs> and we had great fun with that. So, uh, so that's an inside joke. Some of you know why that's so funny. But um, Pastor Theme used to always uh, kind of ridicule people. Years ago, we had a pastor's conference, the last pastor's conference at Baraka Church in 1988. I tried to get some of the other pastors to put together a little men's chorus group and go up and sing something special for him and to sing Do Lord. And they were so scared of him. People didn't know how, what a great sense of humor he had. He would have just fallen over in laughter. But but they were too scared, so we, that didn't get pulled off. But we had fun with that anyway. But the speaker at the banquet was the real treat. That was the real dessert. It was a man I first heard here in Houston in uh, about three years ago at the Jewish Community Center, Dr. Jacques Gautier, who worked for 20 years on his uh, doctoral dissertation on who has the legal ownership rights to the old city of Jerusalem. The old city of Jerusalem, most people don't realize this, when they talk about East Jerusalem and the Palestinian claims for East Jerusalem, they're talking about the old city of Jerusalem. They're talking about all of the holy sites for Israel, all the holy sites for for Christians are in the old city of Jerusalem. And until the late 19th century, that's all there was. You didn't have Jews start buying land and moving outside the walls until the, the about the 1880s, uh, 1870s, 1880s were the first time you had uh, land purchased outside the wall in just small colonies. But so, so the real heart of Jerusalem is the old city, is East Jerusalem. And the Palestinians are laying claim to that. Well, Dr. Godier has gone back. You've heard me present a lot of his findings as I've discussed the San Remo resolutions and uh, the, the uh, end of the First World War and how the Balfour Declaration, which had no legal standing whatsoever, became uh, uh, was made completely a part of the San Remo Resolution and therefore had gained the status of international law because it was adopted word for word into San Remo. And so he gave an hour-long presentation. You, you're, when, when we get the videos ready, uh, you're going to want to watch that video. It's the best I've heard him do. I've heard him three or four times. He does have some YouTube videos out there that you can watch. Uh, his name's spelled G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R, and he does an incredible job. He got his uh, doctorate at the University of uh, at Geneva University at their uh, School of International Law, and the three uh, professors he had def- to defend his dissertation to were n- were hostile. They were not sympathetic to his thesis at all, which is that the Jews have undisputed legal uh, ownership of all of Jerusalem and have since the end of World War One. So um, he was able to defend. That's what took him 20 years to write it. He has over 32 hundred footnotes and the dissertation I have a, which I have a copy of uh, it weighs about 15 to 20 pounds it's huge um, so I had heard him and and t- told Tommy Ice about him Tommy and I both bought his dissertation a couple of years ago and so we were able to get him to come 
and uh, be the banquet speaker. Then on Tuesday morning, Dr. Toussaint, I hope before the Lord takes him home to get him here for a Chafer conference, gave devotions, and then Dr. David Reagan spoke on the topic of the evil of replacement theology, its origin, history, and contemporary relevance. He did a, from what I hear, he did a great job. I heard about 20 minutes of it, and he was, he was tremendous. And he showed how, uh, replacement theology was not part of the early church in the first two centuries and how it gradually came in because of a shift to an allegorical interpretation. Of course, you all have been taught about this many times, but for many people, this is new information. Historically, this covered the period from the early church up to the Protestant Reformation. Then in the second part of that morning, we had a message from uh, Dr. Bill Watson, who is a professor of history at Colorado Christian University, and his topic was a history of Christian Zionism. Basically, he covered the rise of Christian Zionism from the period just after the Reformation through the 1700s. So he basically covered the mid, last part of the 1500s, 1600s, up to the 1700s. And he also, this guy is, is, is amazing. He is a multilinguist. He's a polyglot. Uh, he was a German translator for the United States Army and um, back in the 60s and 70s, and that training has served him well. He also knows Greek and Hebrew and Latin and several other languages, which enables him to do a lot of original language research in and through the uh, 16th or 17th century, which is his area of specialty, 17th century British, 17th and 18th century British literature. And he has discovered dozens and dozens of passages showing that many of the Puritans not only were premillennial, they were pre-tribulational. So for years, dispensationalists have been told by uh, people who are not dispensationalists that John Nelson Darby was the first to invent the pre-trib rapture in the 1830s. Now, because of the pre-trib rapture study group and the scholars that have been uh, motivated by this think tank, there have been uh, a, quite a number of, uh, uh, of, of historical figures, pastors, going all the way back to pseudo-Ephraim in the 4th century in Syria, who held to a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, they really had not, not all these guys had put all the details together over the years. Uh, some of them only had three-and-a-half-year raptures. It's not a half-tribulation because they don't have a seven-year tribulation. It's not like a mid-trib. They just have a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. But the church is raptured before the tribulation begins. And that's very clear. Well, also what he pointed out in this is how a, that what was going along with this in during this period was a shift to uh, a literal view of the Jews. That when it talked about the Jews and the Israelites, it was ta- it wasn't talking about the church. It was talking about literal Jews and the literal land of Israel, and that the Jews would be restored to the land um, be, <clears throat> before the the Messiah came back. So he did a fabulous job of that. That gets a little, you know, into a lot of historical minutia and detail, but that is so important to see the fact he quotes dozens and dozens of these pastors and theologians and some, and, and under the Puritan, um, uh, Repu- what was it? The Puritan Commonwealth under, uh, Cromwell, many of these individuals were, for example, people like John Owen, who was a chaplain to Cromwell and, uh, uh, John Dury, who was a chaplain to Cromwell, 
many, many others uh, were, were developing these ideas at that time and citing from the original sources to show that is, is, uh, is, is remarkable. So Bill did a fabulous job, and that really covered the first 13 pages of my outline, which was good because I had a 60-page outline to cover, and as much as somebody else could take away from me, that was good. So uh, every, all of this gelled. Uh, Reagan did up to the Reformation. Watson did the first 200 years after the Reformation, and then I covered uh, Jewish and Christian Zionism, from the the uh, Protestant Reformation up to the Balfour Declaration, and of course the night before, in Gautier's presentation, he had covered everything from the Balfour Declaration to the present. So you can listen to these four uh, uh, four messages from D- Dave Rake and Bill Watson, myself, and and Dr. Gautier, and if you listen to them in that order, you will get the panorama of church history and what the church has thought about Israel. Um, uh, throughout the, the the centuries, from the from the birth of the church to the present, and the current events on uh, Tuesday night were developed by two people: Bill Koenig, who is a White House correspondent, and he has his own website, which I don't have present. Do you remember the website? Watch dot org. Watch dot org. Very conservative guy. I would recommend you looking at his website. Uh, he gave a lot of uh, interesting analysis of what's going on today, some frightening information when you realize uh, what some people in this country and upper levels of leadership are trying to do. And so that's important to listen to him. And then the other speaker that night was someone known to this congregation. That was Yorm Edinger, who's uh, the ed- editor of the Edinger Report. And we had him here in September. And he spoke about some different things than he spoke about here. And one of the more interesting aspects of what he discussed was on the uh, demographic issue. One of the big claims that you'll hear from people who um, support the two-state solution in Israel, that is that Israel should have their own state, the Palestinians should have their own state, is that, that the demographics, if the Arabs are making babies like rabbits, then if it's one state, then the Arabs are going to overwhelm the Jews. But the reality is the Arabs aren't making babies like rabbits anymore. They're, you know, Israel's pouring a lot of money into Palestine. A lot of people don't know that. Building the infrastructure in Palestine to try to build a middle class. The more middle class they become, the lower the birth rate becomes. So the Arab birth rate has dropped uh, significantly Whereas not just the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel are having babies, but a lot of, uh, of it's become, it's become a mark of Zionist patriotism to have four or five children. And this is becoming popular in Israel so that the birth rate in Israel for the last 10 years has been skyrocketing. And at, at the current rate, uh, there will, there's not going to be a demographic problem. If you had a single state right now, uh, the Jews would be in the majority and they would stay in the majority. Yorm's got some fantastic information on that. Then the next morning, the next morning, the first speaker was uh, Michael Rydelnik, whom I've gotten to know pretty well the last couple of years. He's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at uh, Moody Bible Institute. And he spoke on the land promise in the New Testament. He also began with his testimony, which was fascinating, because both of his parents were Holocaust survivors. All of their families were killed in the Holocaust. And uh, they, he was raised in an Orthodox home. And, he, and the story of how he came to know the Lord is, is, is 
is significant. It's interesting. I'm not going to tell you because when I go to Kiev in January, this was such a great presentation, his topic and his testimony, that, that I'm going to have that shown one of those Bible class nights when I'm gone. When I'm gone, Tommy Ice will be here. I told you we we're going to have a surprise. He's going to be here both Sundays and the Tuesday, Thursday in between. Uh, I'll be gone three other nights. Uh, we'll have uh, video for Thessalonians a couple of those nights and then this Michael Rydelnik presentation, and you will thoroughly enjoy that. That is going to be uh, well well worth listening to. And then uh, Andy Woods from Pastor Sugarland Bible Church spoke on Israel and the kingdom of God at the 1015 slot. I guess Andy always does a great job. It was great. That's that's the tough slot because so many people have to get to the airport, get in their cars or whatever, and leave early. That uh, that's not always a full house. But that was that was uh, that was that. So it was a great conference. We'll have the videos. Uh, Barb, you're going to put the papers up on the Dean Bible website. They're already up on the website, so you can look at those. Two of them. Uh, I skipped Paul Wilkinson. Paul Wilkinson spoke in the afternoon before me on the Palestinian case for the land for Israel. In other words, we know what the case is for that the Isra- that Israel presents for why they own the land. Well, what is the legal case that the Palestinians put forth? And I'll give you the short version. There isn't one. But they have a lot of lies and they have a lot of propaganda and the world believes their lies and propaganda and they ignore the legalities and they turn their back on Israel. So it really doesn't matter what the truth is because the world just doesn't care. But Paul has a PowerPoint presentation, not a paper. Uh, that's in there, and that was true of Rodelnik as well. Okay, we're going to look at Romans. And uh, we sort of that the report shortened things a little bit, uh, but we have a short passage, and we're going to do a flyover. So we've got several things I want to accomplish before we're done. So you might want to turn in your Bibles briefly to Romans 11. We won't be there long. Romans 11. Now, in the last several months, last two or three months, we've gone through in significant and meticulous detail uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. I received what I thought was two nice compliments from two friends of mine that I respect very much for their scholarship and their study of the Word at the conference. One was Randy Price. Randy came up to me after my presentation, and he said, I don't know how you keep all those dates and all those people straight. I said, because I had 60 pages of notes in front of me. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I should have said, well, just thank you very much. Yes, I keep it all straight, but no, I'm too honest. I said, I had all, all that. He said, I couldn't tell you were reading a thing. So that was nice. But the one I really prized was Mark Hitchcock. I got on the elevator. Mark's a pastor of a large church on the n- north side of uh, Oklahoma. And he had one of his deacons was with him, and they got on the same elevator with me. And Mark turned to, the, to his deacon and said, this is Robbie Dean. I was telling you about him on the way uh, down here. I said, you got to let whatever you, he does, he leaves no stone unturned in his uh, when he develops a topic or a subject. And I thought, I know he's listened to Randy. Randy's really the one that leaves no stone unturned. But that was a nice compliment. I appreciate that. And we've done that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Rome, the, the, the real meat of this section, dealing with God's righteousness in relationship to Israel, ends 
at verse 32, which we finished last time. Verse 33 is a transition. Paul has built his case for the righteousness of God in relation to Gentiles, in relation to Jews, and their failure, concluding that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then he goes to Romans uh, 3, 4, and 5, develops justification. Then from there he goes to develop sanctification in 6, 7, and 8. And then in 9 through 11, he deals with the righteousness of God in relation to Israel. And as he builds to this climax, this apex of his argument, he just breaks out in this praise in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. That final statement to the glory of God isn't just concluding Romans 9, 10, and 11. It is a conclusion to Romans 1 through 11. Everything builds, and then as Paul thinks about this intricate, detailed, logical presentation he has made of the righteousness of God, he just breaks out in this spontaneous praise of God's omniscience, his wisdom, and how he has worked this out in human history that it is ultimately beyond our comprehension. In verse, in 12.1, he's going to shift gears to talk about the application of what we have learned about God's righteousness in different areas and different arenas of life. So Romans 1 through 11 is the foundation, the, 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 the first part of the book, and then there's a shift to Romans 12 through uh, 16. So, what I thought we would do before we look at this is just go back and pick up an overview. It's important for us to go through these kinds of overviews because so often we can get lost in the weeds and the details and, and the minutia as we go through the exegesis of a passage, and we forget that, that these were letters that were written to be read in one sitting uh, from the pulpit to the congregation. And we go through and we pick it apart and we deal with all the nuances and everything which is important, but sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. And so I haven't done an overview of Romans uh, 1 through 11 and and an overview of what we've done in a while. I didn't really do much of one in the transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9, so I wanted to do that uh, this evening. In chapter 1, we have the introduction. The introduction covers the first 17 verses and introduces us to the theme of the book. We have these initial uh, greetings and salutation in verses 1 through 7 where Paul addresses this to the church in in Rome, and he uh, brings out uh, several facets about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 3, born of the seed of David, identifying him, notice, Early on, 
Now that we see where he heads in 9 through 11, we see from the very beginning he foreshadows that emphasis on Israel. Christ is born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God. This is not that he becomes the Son of God, but that the resurrection uh, demonstrates that, validates his, his claim to be the Son of God. And that it's through him in verse 5 that we've received grace and apostleship for the purpose of obedience to the faith. Okay, so that's the greetings in 1 through 7. Then in 8 through 15, he expresses his desire to visit Rome that he has tried many times, but that he has uh, been blocked. It hasn't been God's will for him to, uh, to, to make it. But he wants to come, verse 15, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, I keep coming back to this because of some things that go on. The term gospel we often use in a narrow sense, meaning what a person needs to believe to have eternal life or to be justified. If Paul is writing this epistle to the congregation in Rome, why do they need to hear how to get to heaven? He's made it very clear. He's not just talking about the gospel in terms of its simple message, how an unbeliever gets saved or gets justified and gets eternal life. It's the, the, there's a, I hate to use this term, I use it facetiously, there's a full gospel. The Pentecostals aren't right as to what it is. There's a full gospel, and the full gospel is how to have the full abundant life that Jesus gives us. It's not just getting justified. It is includes how the justified person is to live and experience all the blessings that God has given him. That's what Romans does. It talks about justification in 3 through 5, and it talks about the spiritual life in, in uh, 6 through 8. And that's very much a part of the gospel. But it's we tend to think of the gospel in just that narrow John 3.16 aspect. But Paul uses the term gospel in a much broader sense many, many times. It's the full good news, all of the wonderful things that God has provided for us in Christ, not just getting eternal life, but getting all of the blessings that we've been blessed with uh, in the the spiritual life. So that's how Paul uses it here. And the theme is expressed in verses 16 to 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation, not just justification. As I pointed out many times, the word salvation and getting saved in Romans isn't just phase one justification. It has to do with the entire spiritual life all the way out to its completion in glorification. So that's how he uses it here. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Phase one, phase two, phase three, everything. Justification, sanctification, glorification to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That first faith is justification faith. The second faith is sanctification, spiritual life faith. And so this is grounded in uh, the righteousness of God. Now that's the introduction in uh, through verse 17. Then in the first major division, it goes through chapter 5, verse 21, God's righteousness is revealed in condemnation and justification. God is totally righteous in condemning the human race because we haven't lived up to his uh, standard. And so chapters uh, 1 through 3 focus on condemnation. So if you think your way through Romans... 
the, the first five chapters deal with God's condemnation and justification. That's broken into two parts. Condemnation in 118 to 320, and then justification in 321 to 521. Condemnation and justification. And then we'll see sanctification, Israel, and you've got the first 11 chapters. You can think it through very easily. So what we see then in breaking this down is in that first part, 118 to 320, first of all, he deals with immoral Gentiles. Immoral Gentiles, God brings judgment in time, discipline in time against them. That's the wrath of God. Wrath of God isn't the future judgment. Wrath of God is present tense being poured out today. Wrath of God is present tense revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Every pagan unbeliever knows that God exists, and they hate it, and they suppress it, and they fight against it. That's what this is all about. And because they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, in verse 21, God then uh, delivers them over. He just pulls back the restraints and says, you want to do that? Good, I'm just going to let you have your have your way. And he uh, gives them their head, and they, they go forward. And so we have these series of verbs in verse 24. God also gave them up to uncleanness. And you have a series of different sins that characterize that first giving over. And then verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to vile passions. And this is the introduction of homosexuality. This is a judgment. We're not being judged for homosexual marriage. Homosexual marriage is a judgment on this nation for the fact that we have rejected God, for the fact that we have rejected the scriptures. What we're seeing in our country today is is the judgment of God for negative volition. We're not going to be judged for these horrible things that are going on. That is the judgment for our rejection of the truth. The third stage, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. That is the ultimate stage of cultural collapse because when that characterizes a people, that people can no longer stand. So we go from the condemnation of immoral Gentiles to the condemnation of moral Gentiles in chapter 2. God judges those who uh, think they are better than everybody else and good enough to get into heaven. And so uh, the self-righteous and moral Gentiles are condemned in the first uh, six 16 verses, the hypocrites. Uh, first verse, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you practice the same uh, thing in terms of their pride and their arrogance. So there's a condemnation of the moral man in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. 
then the Jews are condemned. The Jews have the law. The, the, the statement that is given at the end of verse uh, 12, uh, verse 12, the end of that last section, for as many as have sinned without law, that's the Gentiles. They don't have the, the revelation of God. But nevertheless, they have sinned without law, and God judges them based on obedience to the revelation that he has given them, which is natural revelation. And they have rejected that, and because of that, God is going to bring uh, judgment upon them. Then the topic shifts to the Jews. Not only are the Gentiles guilty, but the Jews are guilty. Yes, they have the law. Yes, they revered the law. They honored the law superficially, but they broke the law. And there are six things that they had given in 17 and 18. They're called a Jew. These are six uh, privileges they have. They broke. They were called a Jew. They rested on the law. They boasted in God. They knew his will. They approved things that are excellent. They were instructed out of the law. And then there are six things that gave them advantages, given in 19 and 20. They were a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of infants. But they rejected the law. They still broke the law. They only held to it in a formal way, uh, but they didn't obey it. And their failures are outlined in 21 through 23. They, they teach one another, but they don't teach themselves. They preach that a man should not steal, but then they steal. They say, don't commit adultery, then they commit adultery. They abhorred idols, but they robbed temples. Uh, so they boasted in the law, but they dishonored God by breaking the law. So they come under condemnation. Secondly, they revered circumcision in verses 25 down to 29, but uh, they didn't obey God. They disobeyed God. They thought that circumcision, a superficial obedience, was good enough, but it wasn't good enough so that they were uh, condemned by God, and then they rejected the oracles of God and, and chapter 3, verses, uh, verses one, through, uh, 1 through 8. So that brings the Jews under condemnation, and then from 3, 9 through 20, uh, Paul shows that, see, not only are Gentiles condemned, Jews are condemned, but the whole world is condemned because no one has lived up to the righteous standard uh, of God, so that all are under sin. Verse nine: Are we what? What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And so that that not only those who are with the law are condemned by the law, those who don't have the law are still disobedient to the revelation that has been given to them. And then we come to uh, 321. Uh, 321 starts the great section on justification by faith alone. 321 starts this section, and uh, we learn that a man is justified by faith alone. And in 21 to 31, we see the development of this, this doctrine. Verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But verse 24 says that we have been justified freely by his grace. It's a free gift. It's not something we earn. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption, that is the purchase price that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Now, these are great words that are lost today because we've dumbed down translations because we have raised a generation of children and adults that don't have a vocabulary. And it's sad because these are great words, redemption, justification, imputation. This morning I had a great conversation with Jim Myers. Uh, 
By the way, there's a little turmoil over in Ukraine. I'll be going over there. Don't worry. It's worse on the news than it is in reality. He said there's been a few riots downtown, a few demonstrations, and the people who are demonstrating have done stupid things like thrown rocks at the thugs who pass as police officers, and they, get, and they get shot. You know, if you don't want to get shot by police, don't throw rocks at them. It's pretty simple. But these things have only happened in a few small areas during some... Uh, one event that happened was there were a lot of uh, Western uh, journalists there, and the, the, the police thugs beat up on the journalists because the journalists were telling everybody what they were really doing. So... Uh, it's it's confined. He said, you know, 95% of Kiev, business goes on as, as normal, but there have been a few instances, but uh, we need to be in prayer, uh, prayer for them. But he was talking about the fact that he had an opportunity, I may have the same opportunity when I go over there, to teach at a church that's been there for quite some time named St. Paul's. And he said, Robbie, I'm going through Romans, and they've never heard of imputation or justification. And they call themselves St. Paul's Church, and they don't know any of these things. It's not any different here. He said, no matter how dumbed down I get, it's not down enough. I, I teach what I think is just pure pablum, and people come and say, that's just too heavy. I, I can't understand all that. We've raised, internationally, we have raised a generation of nitwits. People who can't think anymore. It's not an American problem. It's an international problem. I think this is one of the things that is going to set the stage for the Antichrist. People who cannot think anymore. So anyway, um, 321 to uh, 331 explains justification. Then chapter 4 illustrates it from Abraham. Illustrates it from Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. Why? Because he believed God long before there was a Mosaic law, before there, before he was circumcised, before there was any of that, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. If you understand that, it's the illustration in chapter four, you can understand chapter four. It all relates to that illustration of, of, of uh, Abraham. Then in chapter 5, we have the benefits of justification, that because God has declared us just before his supreme court, these are the benefits that we have. We have peace with God in verse 1. In verse 2, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, we have uh, these blessings. We can glory in tribulation. Because we know that tribulation produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God. That's the fourth thing. We have a tangible expression of God's love poured out in us by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, A fifth benefit is that we will be saved in the future from the wrath through him. We will miss out on aspects of divine discipline in time because we're obedient to his word. And the sixth benefit is that while we were enemies, in verse 10, we were reconciled to God. Therefore, we can rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse verse 11. Then we have justification applied to all, in verses 12 through 21, that uh, righteousness 
uh, verse 21 says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do we experience that on a day-to-day basis? Well, that's the next section uh, called sanctification or the spiritual life in chapters 6, 7, and 8. The first part develops the fact that sanctification or the ability to live for God is based on the baptism by the Holy Spirit of justification, 6, 1 through 14. Then we learn that sanctification means that not only has the power of the sin nature been broken at the baptism by the Holy Spirit, but that means we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're to live as slaves to righteousness. Now, is that done by the law? Paul answers that in chapter 7 and says, no, it's not based on the law. The law is righteous, just, and good, but you can't get sanctified by living the law. It's just going to leave you frustrated. The answer comes in chapter 8, which is that sanctification is based on a relationship with God the Holy Spirit. We have to walk by the Spirit if we're going to experience the fullness of life that God has for us. And that brings him to a conclusion in verses 31 to 39 where he emphasizes God's everlasting eternal love and that nothing can separate us from God's love. And as he comes to that conclusion in verses 38 and 39, where he says that I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone may say who's Jewish, wait a minute, God seems to have dumped the Jews. He promised these things in the Old Testament and now he's going to the Gentiles. God doesn't like the Jews anymore, so how can we believe in his faithfulness? And so in Romans 9 to 11, we're going to see God's righteousness revealed in his relationship with Israel. The first chapter shows that that his righteousness is revealed in his rejection of corporate Israel. Not every Jew is unsaved, but corporately Israel is now removed from a place of blessing because they have rejected Jesus as Messiah. But this isn't permanent. This is only temporary. But he says that this reveals God's righteousness because Israel disobeyed God. God is going to punish them. But it's not a permanent state. And it's not uh, uh, against individuals. It's dealing with corporate Israel. That Israel is still the chosen, the choice one of God. Election is corporate here. It has to do with the corporate selection of Israel. And then in chapter 10, as we've seen, is God's righteousness demonstrates that that rejection is based on Israel's corporate neglect of revelation. Because Israel has rejected what God revealed, God is just and righteous in punishing them. But it's not permanent. There will be a time when any who call upon him and when Israel calls upon him in the name of the Lord, they will be delivered. That is a quote from Joel chapter 2. And and that refers to an end-time fulfillment. <clears throat> and then we came to Romans 11, where God's righteousness reveals his faithfulness to the promises to Israel and that there will be a future deliverance of Israel, and they will be restored to that place of blessing. And that's seen in that olive tree illustration. And I had a great il- example of this sitting at the banquet table the other night talking with a lady at the table who was a Bible teacher at a church up in... Uh, uh, somewhere up north, and and she made a comment, and it related to the olive tree illustration, and she just had the interpretation dead wrong. 
which isn't unusual today. People think that the olive tree illustration has something to do with salvation or something to do with this thing or that thing. It has to do with the place of blessing within the Abrahamic covenant, that Israel is removed temporarily. It's not a lot. The breaking off the branches can't be salvation because that would indicate a loss of salvation. It's that they're being temporarily removed from the place of blessing. That's the whole theme in these three chapters. Gentiles are the wild olive branches are grafted in, and this is all going to work itself together in the plan of God so that eventually he'll bring the natural olive branches back back in and uh, and he says that in in this manner he says that God's plan will work out even more to the benefit of all of the nations. Uh, verse 28, he says, concerning the gospel, right now corporate Israel is enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, that is their choice in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Uh, for as we were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also, corporate Israel, have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you as Gentiles, they also may obtain mercy." That's how it all comes together. When the final part comes together in God's plan, we're just going to be speechless as to how it all came about. And that's what brings Paul to this great statement where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. When he says this, he begins with the figure of speech, the depth of the riches of God, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, often we use the word, uh, we use a figure of speech when we talk about something being being uh, incomprehensible. We say it's unfathomable. I can't even say that. Unfathomable. A fathom is a unit of measurement. Uh, back in the long time ago, they used to uh, way measurements develop was a, a hand width and uh, or the length of an arm from the shoulder to the tip tip of the thumb or something like that for a cubit, or the length of the forearm for a cubit. And a fathom was if you stood up and you held your arms out in a circle, the the circumference of that circle was roughly a fathom. It came to be six feet. And when uh, this is a nautical term. And it would be used when you're going out into the water and you want to measure the depth of the water. You'd see how many fathoms deep it is. And if you can't find the bottom, it's unfathomable. You, you can't find the depths. You can't reach the bottom of something. And so that's the idea here, the depth of the riches. You can't plumb the depths. We can't comprehend God. So this is a great figure of speech used uh, many times throughout the Scripture. And it's usually related to, well, the depth of the riches. Riches is really a metaphor, also a metaphor to describe the abundance of what God has given us, the abundance of His grace. Passages like Romans 2.4 are, do you despise the riches, that is the abundance of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, riches there refers to the, the abundance of his grace gifts. Romans 9.23 said, Oh, that he might make known the riches of his glory, the abundance of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Ephesians uses it a lot. 
Ephesians 1, 7 talks about the riches of his grace, the abundance of his grace. In Ephesians 1, 18, again, it talks about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In Ephesians 2, 7, it talks about the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ. And then in Colossians 1, 27, it says, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. It's the superabundance of what God has given us freely in grace. So the depth of the riches, the depth of the abundance of his wisdom and knowledge. Now, uh, wisdom and knowledge, uh, I'll get to, I'll come back and talk about that in just a second. Uh, the wisdom of knowledge, how unsearchable are his judgments. This is the Greek word anexeronitas, meaning that you can't you can't you can't search it out you can't seek it all it's incomprehensible so the wisdom and knowledge are incomprehensible to us that doesn't mean that we can't comprehend what god has revealed but what he has revealed is more than than we can comprehend and there's more to god than that we can't comprehensively understand god but we can comprehend what he has revealed but he hasn't revealed himself exhaustively to us. So there's, we'll go for eternity and never, never come close to plumbing the depths of, of what we can learn from God. They are past finding out or tracing out. They're unsearchable and inscrutable. So we look at the term wisdom, wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is more than information. Information is just facts and data. Knowledge takes that and constructs it together in uh, in various ways to produce something. So uh, contextually, knowledge has to do with with God's understanding of every aspect of creation. It's part of His omniscience. God's knowledge is all inclusive. There's nothing we can think of, nothing we can imagine that is beyond the knowledge of God. God is infinite. All of his attributes uh, uh, are infinite. Infinity implies to all of his attributes, including knowledge. His knowledge has no limits. He knows everything that is actual and everything that is possible. Every conceivable permutation is known to him. His knowledge is direct and exhaustive. He knows all the knowable. His knowledge includes everything from the most, most, Minutia, the most minute detail to all of the macro relations, causes, and consequences of anything and everything in the universe. And he knows it directly, intuitively, and, and immediately. He is always aware of all that. His knowledge never increases or decreases. Now, wisdom is more than knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and to use it to craft something that is skillful and beautiful. It has to do with not only knowledge, but also artistry. So wisdom is the application of knowledge in a skillful or artistic way in the production or creation of something. So we have verses like this. Proverbs 3.19, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. Wisdom is the skill that God used in creating the universe and creating the earth. Psalm 104.24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. Uh, Psalm 136.5, to him who by wisdom made the heavens for his mercy endures forever. So knowledge and wisdom uh, are brought together in Romans 
1133 because it pulls together everything that God uh, God used in carrying out, developing and carrying out his plan. And it's beyond us. We cannot comprehend it. We cannot uh, unscrew the inscrutable. We can just sit back and marvel at how it will all come together. And then Paul supports this with two quotes from the Old Testament. In uh, Romans 11.34, he quotes uh, from Isaiah 40.13 and 14. Uh, Romans 11.34 reads, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Roman, in Isaiah 40, we read, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or has his counselor taught him? See, there's, the answer is no one. No one could teach God. He already knows everything. No one can give him guidance. He is already aware of everything. Verse 14, with whom did he take counsel and who instructed him? And who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one did because God knows it all. That's the, the, this is a remarkable passage on the omniscience of God. And then the second verse, Romans 11:35, or who is first given to him and it shall be repaid to him, is just a really free sort of a, a translation uh, from Job 4.11, so more of a paraphrase of Job 41.11, which reads, Who has preceded me that I should pay him everything under heaven is mine. In other words, the point here is, is God says, There's nothing before me, that nothing that preceded me. Everything is mine. Um, so you can't appeal to anything above me or before me uh, as the basis for my knowledge. And this brings us to the concluding prayer. Uh, for Paul says, for of him, that is from the source of God comes everything. Through him and because of him and from him, everything. And through him, that is, he is the means to everything. He is the source of everything for of him. Through him, he is the means by which everything has been created. And it is ultimately for him and his glory to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. That brings us to the end of the first 11 chapters in Romans. And next time we'll come back and start in Romans 12.1, where we get into the application of God's righteousness to everyday living. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, review these things, to be reminded of your uh, excellent greatness, your knowledge, your wisdom, and that, that whether we understand it at all. We know that everything is working out according to your plan, and that gives us great comfort that no matter how chaotic or disruptive things may appear, no matter how it seems that things just fall apart all around us, nevertheless, you are in control and you are bringing about your purposes in history through the way that you are, are working in these details. So we can relax and trust in you even though it might mean our very own life at times. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Father, we pray for Jim Myers, I mentioned tonight. We pray for his safety and those that are there in Ukraine. Pray for stability there. But above all, we pray that, that any source of instability there will just drive people to a recognition that they need a source of hope and meaning in life, and that only comes from the Scriptures. Father, we pray that we might learn that lesson as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.